This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents, or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 28th episode of The Quarter Bin, I'm looking at Rune number 4 from Malibu Comics, cover dated January 1996. By this point in time, Malibu Comics had been purchased by Marvel. But first, a little feedback. Kirk Greenfield is working his way through the back catalog and messaged me about some of the old episodes. I really warmed up to the Quarterbin podcast, especially having heard the origin story in episode 10. And though I thought the choice of Ride of the Valkyries as backing for the Nam episode was poor, I'm enjoying it more as a continuing theme behind overly dramatic Doctor Doom appearances. I told Kurt that I actually agree with him about the music in that episode, the Nam issue. I use Wagner for every Quarterbin episode. And that is the one time where it was a real misfit. I do regret that particular choice now, especially that exact song. I was too locked into my format, and I just should have gone with something more Americana. He also asked me where I got the Professor Allen that closes the show. Well, that stinger is the handiwork of the best jingle man in the business, and a great musician to boot, the Jeff Smith from... TheJeffSmith.com T-H-E-G-E-O-F-F S-M-I-T-H.com The Jeff Smith New feedbacker Chris Smith Send an email with the title I Love This Show Which is a great way to get me to read the rest of your message by the way Chris says I love your show As the title of my email says And I must say you have one of my favorite podcasts I love listening to podcasts when I'm reading my comics, doing my homework, bored at school, hey, wait a minute, or putting away dishes. I consider I'm a fan of a number of characters from the books you reviewed, and Doctor Doom is my favorite Marvel villain. Not truly sure, because I'm a fan of a lot of Marvel villains, but Doom is so awesome and classic, right? Well, Chris, you are right about the awesome and classic part, but we at the Latverian Institute of Doomonomics would quibble with the use of the word villain. Chris then joins the chorus of people who don't have access to 25-cent bins. The closest thing I have is the 50-cent bin of the pawn shop near my college, but it's small and only half the things I want and a dollar comic box at my comic store, which normally they don't have anything I want. But I did get half my Alpha Flight collection from there. Well, thank you, Chris, and thank you to Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor, because Chris said he was pretty sure he found this show via a promo on the Great Superman podcast, From Crisis to Crisis. Noel C.T., co-host of the excellent movie podcast I Hate Slash Love Remakes, and the comic book blog The Super Saturday Short-Lived Showcase, has also been working his way through the back catalog. He commented on episode 5, covering an issue of ROM. He also expressed appreciation of writer Bill Mantlow's work. I can't argue that he's always great, 
but his style just so specifically clicks with me that he can do no wrong in my book. That's a keen insight, Noel. Thanks for writing in. Noel also tweeted me that I may have convinced him to track down back issues of Hex, which I covered in Episode 6. I simply told him what my legal advisors have told me. <coughs> Quarterbin reviews are only to be construed as recommendations up to, but not exceeding, a price point of 25 cents per issue. Purchases made above that price point are the complete responsibility of the purchaser, and Professor Allen and Relatively Geeky Productions are relieved of all fiduciary responsibilities related to said purchases. Moving up to episode 24, faithful feedbacker Luke Giaconetti wanted to talk about the Man-Things guest spot in the Micronauts issue that I covered there. As soon as the Micronauts wound up in the Everglades, there was little choice but to bring in Man-Thing. Because as we all know, Comic Book Law stated that in the 1970s and 80s, if you ended up in the Florida Everglades, you had to run into the Man-Thing. And you cannot break Comic Book Law. Now, I also noted in that issue that there was a huge Superman-themed ad right in the middle of the Marvel issues. Luke commented on that by saying, I have run into that Kryptonite Rocks ad in my reading of the Shogun Warriors comics from the same era, which, by the way, Luke covers as part of his excellent Daikaiju podcast, Earth Destruction Directive, which is part of the Two True Freaks podcast network. But back to his email. I personally chalk this up to Superman being Superman and simply not giving a flip. You don't like me advertising in your mag? What are you going to do about it? Luke does have a point here. Superman could easily have chucked Stan Lee right into the sun if he had raised any objections about the ad. Luke closes. Thanks, dude, and keep up the awesome work. Thanks for listening and writing, Luke. Jason Trenner also wrote in about that issue, mostly noting, well, that was interesting. He then lists various places that he's run into Bug or Baron Karza over the years of reading. He also referred to Man-Thing as being, quote, on the fringe for me, unquote, mentioning the Jeff Parker run on Thunderbolts as one of the few places he's crossed paths with the Man-Thing. I got a quick comment on the Legends of the Dark Knight story in episode 25 from new commenter Ahud the Deliverer. I don't think that's his real name, especially since he signed his email Christopher. You see, all those Sherlock Holmes stories finally come in handy deciphering these clues. Well, Ahud slash Christopher says he's really been enjoying the podcasts. They are fun, and I like hearing about these stories. He also commented that he was a fan of the band whose song I played at the close of that episode. It was fun to hear them tied into that issue. Well, I totally forgot to credit them on the show notes or the blog post, so let me do that here. That song was Mercy by The Prayer Chain from their 1992 EP Whirlpool, although I first heard the song on their even more obscure independent recording called The Neverland Sessions. Glad I could set that straight. Thanks for listening and writing, Christopher. A quick break for a promo, then we're on to the book for this episode. It's a party and you're invited. 
I'm Tim Galloway, your host and keeper of the Mouse Castle Lounge, your weekly dose of news, commentary, and interviews from the world of Disney, served up with your favorite tasty beverage. Drop by and see us at themousecastle.com or just look for the Mouse Castle on Facebook. It's good times and great conversations about the house that Mickey built. By the way, did you know that Walt Disney's favorite drink was a Scotch Mist? I'm more of a martini man myself. We'll see you soon at the Mouse Castle Lounge. And we're back. Rune number four had a cover price of $1.50. Or as the cover itself says, only $1.50. Meaning I acquired this comic at a very nice 83% markdown. The story, The Damned, was written by Paul O'Connor with Len Kaminsky and with art by Deep Breath, Tony Akins, Patrick Rollo, Gabriel Gecko, Jason Moore, and Jeff Whiting. The cover by Joe St. Pierre shows a gray-skinned, winged beast with fang-like teeth shrieking or groaning. It's hard to tell. He has some colored jewels around his neck, and in one hand he is gripping the shirt of a dead guy who is laying at his feet. The cover copy promises the madness of the Prince of Void. The issue itself starts with Rune in the negative zone. Like I said, Malibu was part of Marvel by this point, and Rune's presence there was the result of some cross-company scenario that is totally beyond me. Fortunately, Rune's mind flashes back a few centuries. In the year of our Lord, 1348, the great mortality stalked the land, and a third of the world died. This is the story of a city of the damned, the hero who failed to save us, and the evil one who was our savior. With that commentary setting the stage, we move into the throne room of Rune, the virtually immortal vampire-like being who is the Prince of Void. At this point in time, he has set himself up as the ruler of a medieval kingdom, though he takes little pleasure from ruling these animals. His agreement with his people is that he will protect them from the plague in exchange for him, you know, killing one of them whenever he's hungry. In the first few pages, we witness one of these feedings. The others steal furtive glances at the horror in their midst. Terror is drowned with relief that someone else was chosen. Merciful Lord Rune has granted them another day of life. His feeding is interrupted by a servant, who informs him that another outbreak has occurred at a house inside the walls. At first angered by the interruption, Rune is grateful for the distraction. Perhaps this chore will provide some small amusement. He knows what has to be done, understanding that the plague will spread rapidly through the narrow streets of the city. Better to burn the entire quarter than risk the rest of the city. Merciful Rune will not let his cattle die. Some of Rune's people are not pleased by this decree, pointing out that dying in their homes is no different than dying from the plague. Their complaints of Rune's tyranny are not met with kindness by the Prince of Void. This riot is no threat to me, but the city must learn what it means to disobey my orders. He takes the rioters into his own hands, literally. Never forget that you are my slaves. I am the Dark God. I am Rune. Our attention turns to the world outside Rune's village, where death is triumphant. We see folk engaged in religious activity to protect their bodies and souls. Amidst these pilgrims rides Adrian, a large, healthy knight, and his young female squire, Ione. A pilgrim asks Adrian how he will battle the evil. 
200 years ago, I would have said with a strong arm and a pure heart, but we're both too old for that. This is the age of evil ascendant. There is a beast in Jerusalem. But they are told by a peasant that the beast is even closer than they think. Journeying on, they find a man hanged from a tree with the proclamation that he was a thief and that the Lord Rune has ordered his execution. Rune's security forces inform Sir Adrian and Ione that they are not welcome in his village, a measure against the great mortality, which often travels beneath fair guises. One of the security men makes a comment about Ione being a fair guise, advising Adrian to leave the girl and be on your way. You cannot defeat us all, except that Adrian has the power to transform into Crusader, a huge powerhouse of a warrior. Tell your Lord Rune that Crusader is coming. Tell him I will look into his soul, and that if I find him evil, I will send him shrieking down to hell. Rune hears of the man's boastful words from his guards, and the Prince of Void is amused. A single man is coming to judge me and to kill me. Perhaps Rune will let Crusader live as a reward for ending his boredom. My court could benefit from a jester. But he has indeed underestimated Crusader, who arrives quickly at the village gates. Ione wants to join her lord as is her duty as a squire, but Crusader instructs her to stay behind. In his transformed form, Crusader is a huge, metallic blue-colored being with a tattoo over his heart and an energy sword. Finally, face to face with his attacker, who promises now that he will show mere men how a god makes war. Swinging his own sword at Crusader, he taunts his enemy. Tell me your name that I might taunt your wailing widow when your bones are dust. Crusader confesses that he has no wife to mourn him, she having already gone to her reward hundreds of years ago. We learn that Crusader believes that his fate is to wander the world until evil is driven from it. He despaired of ever completing his task, but with the pure evil of Rune so near, he senses that the end of his quest may be at hand, and he succeeds in rupturing Rune's armor. We also learn that Crusader possesses the ability to look into a man's soul and weigh the amount of evil and good therein. He expects to find no ambiguity in Rune. Surely this must be a creature of pure evil. But in Rune's soul, Crusader sees neither good nor evil, but only void, and dark shadows of horrors yet unborn. Crusader jumps to the conclusion that Rune is Satan himself, and that by killing him, his oath from 200 years ago to drive evil from Earth will finally be completed. And with all of that motivating him, Crusader pulls as much energy as possible into his sword and slashes deep into Rune's body. He was Rune. He was a prince in his world and a king in ours. He was evil incarnate, a foul devourer of worlds, a drinker of blood who reveled in human misery. He created nothing. He destroyed everything he touched. Rune thought he could never die. He was wrong. And the world will never be the same. To be continued. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night. 
searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. <coughs> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil. You get it. You get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? And we're back. I've mentioned before that by 1996, I was mostly out of buying new comics. I had almost wrapped up my collecting of Legends of the Dark Knight and Iron Man. In episode 23, I mentioned that I had started reading some of the techno-comics titles, but as I said then, I heard about that company from the business press, not from the comic book press. So I missed the early 90s independent boom. The good thing about this is that I missed almost everything about the boom and bust cycle. I missed almost everything from Image and Valiant and Dark Horse which all things considered may be a net positive. One exception, and it's sort of a confession. I did kind of like Spawn, and still own the first 50 issues. The one drawback is that I almost missed Malibu Comics and the Ultraverse, which are widely considered the class of the bunch. At least two faithful listeners and feedbackers are big fans of the Ultraverse line. Jason Trenner, known as Fanboy Miss Prime, is a big fan of the Ultraverse, and, and he and I went back and forth a little bit over the character of Rune. Ben Avery, a co-host on the podcasts Strangers and Aliens, and Welcome to Level 7, owned at one point, and maybe still does, the entire Ultraverse catalog. So I recognize that I'm coming at this issue without the general knowledge of the line and the series that some listeners will have. For that, I apologize in advance. But the good thing is that this story has the distinct feel of a fill-in. The fact that this story is a memory, a flashback of a character who in the continuity of the book is in fact in the negative zone, means that I'm pretty confident that there are not any important continuity moments here that I risk missing. Regular writer Len Kaminsky just wrote the first two pages, the frame of the story, and Paul O'Connor wrote the rest. The sheer number of artists involved in the issue also speaks to its status as a fill-in. The strength of this story is in the captions and dialogue. Paul O'Connor has an interesting way with words, and although I've never read an issue of Rune before, he certainly gets across the dark, anti-hero voice of the title character very well. Crusader and his squire Ione were characters created by O'Connor for this story, and they are interesting creations. Again, each has a distinctive voice, and they seem to be reasonable characters for the time period in which the story takes place. The time period itself and the historical context is a very interesting setting for a comic book story. The drama of the plague time puts real stakes into the story, this is a life-and-death setting. This is a high-consequence scenario. 
And there is something different about this being a real event from history, as opposed to another visit from Galactus or Darkseid or Doom. The reality of the plague grounds a confrontation between otherwise otherworldly forces. Let me talk about Doom for a minute here, and not just because he's my favorite comic book character of all time, and Doom 2099, my favorite comic book series of all time. Actually, what makes Doom 2099 so good is that since he is the title character, the protagonist, he can't just be presented as a villain. He has to be an anti-hero. And what makes Doom 2099 so good is that he is generally portrayed that way throughout the run of the series. And that challenges here in this issue. Rune is a bad guy. The only reason we might consider him something else is that the book is called Rune. O'Connor does a good job at presenting us as somewhat not sympathetic, but understandable version of Rune. Again, the medieval setting helps make this work. Now, if this book was titled Crusader, and Rune was the newly created antagonist for the issue, the story would only have to be changed slightly to accommodate that. Speaking of Crusader, we get a little bit of his backstory dropped in throughout the issue, which is a nice way of getting across that needed exposition, that needed information about the knight and his squire. The art for the issue is workmanlike, nothing out of the ordinary, except for one page. Page 3, the first page of the scene in the past era, uh, the first page after the frame sequence that I read almost in its entirety in the synopsis, is presented in a brightly colored, simply drawn style. It is intended to resemble a medieval illuminated manuscript with the first letter of the page oversized and ornate and multiple patterns across the borders. The artists for this page were Tony Akins and Jason Moore, and the pair did an excellent job in getting across that general vibe. After this page, the art moves into more conventional style, and that's exactly what it is for the rest of the issue. Conventional. The verdict on rune number four I'll be honest, I did not know what to expect. And I understand this was not a standard issue of Rune, but all that being said, I enjoyed this first part of the story, and I'm curious as to where it's going. Definitely worth a quarter, no doubt about it. That wraps up my coverage of Rune number four, bringing episode 28 of the Quarterbin podcast to a close. In episode 29... We'll be looking at Rune number 5 from Malibu Comics, cover dated February 1996. Surprise! Look, it's a to-be-continued story, and I have the issue into which it is continued, so that's where we're going next time. Just between us, I do not expect this to become a habit. So rest assured, Shag, the previous 27 episodes still count! If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The quarter bin podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at Relatively Geeky Podcast. 
www.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.